You know, I can remember in, in uh, 2005, I started preaching the Wednesday night service. And we had really promoted that for a few months leading up to the very first Wednesday night in January of 2005. And that's been a long time ago. It's been 16 years ago. And we had 185 people there that night, and we were glad to have them because that was up because we had promoted it for, for so long. And, you know, God just blessed that, and the weeks went by, and the months went by, and the years went by, and that service really grew and, and, was, and, and did well for a long time. And so here we are now after the pandemic, I say after the pandemic, hopefully at the end of it, trying to get going again. And we've got more than 185. I don't know how many we have tonight. We had 266 last week. But I think that we need to have a goal of having 300 people here on Wednesday night. And as soon as we meet that goal, Jimmy Herbert will buy everybody breakfast in the cafe. How's that? The very first week that we have that. Jimmy's still here? He probably would do that. He probably would do that. So let's make that as a goal that before the summer's over with, and probably maybe even sooner than that, that we could have 300 people. Now, what that's going to require, first of all, we have to be here every week, right? And then we have to get other people to come with us. Now, this is a big room, obviously. This room will hold over 2,800 people. So, you know, even with our crowd tonight, if we were in the chapel, we'd be crammed in there. Wow, this is a big crowd. Well, everything's relative when you do it that way. But I think if we could just be patient, pray, be faithful, get it back. And let's say, let's try to have, you know, 275, 290, 300, and then let's go from there. But anyway, it is good to see you tonight. And I just felt like when I walked in, heard everybody singing, everybody sounds excited to be in church tonight. And I mean, I am. I've been looking forward to this service all day, and I'm just praying that uh, my part in what we've already experienced will be a blessing tonight. Well, if you'll open your Bibles tonight to the book of Genesis... The title of the message is a little bit unusual for a sermon title, but the title is this, Lessons from an Unloved Woman, a Grieving Man, and a Bitter Young Lady. Now, that sounds like a soap opera that's coming in the fall, doesn't it? An unloved woman, a grieving man, and a bitter young lady. But that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. Now, the unloved woman was named Leah. The grieving man was a fellow named Judah. And the bitter young lady was a lady named Tamar, T-A-M-A-R, Tamar, Tamar, however you want to pronounce it. I'll probably just say uh, Tamar tonight. And so I want us to see what we can learn from these three characters. On Wednesday nights, my dad is leading us through a series in the book of Genesis that he's calling Spiritual Footprints. And he's talked about Noah, and we need to follow his, his example of obedience. Talked about Abraham, we need to follow his example of faith. He talked about Isaac. We need to follow his example of, of, of excelling in life even when we're not the main event, when we're not the main character. That was Isaac. He was kind of sandwiched between his famous father Abraham and his twin sons uh, Esau and Jacob. And yet he lived the life God gave him to live. He ran his race and he was faithful. And we all have to learn in life to find our lane and to run in that lane. Don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to run somebody else's race. Be content with who God made you and run your race. Now, next week, he's going to begin a study on the life of Joseph. At least I think he is. That's what we had talked about the last time he said he was. And so, as I was thinking about what I might talk about tonight, I want to talk about these three characters, Leah, Judah, and Tamar, and see what we can learn from them. Now, first of all, let me give you the context of who Leah is. First of all, let's do a little test tonight. We know that Abraham 
had a wife, and her name was Sarah. Isaac had a wife, and her name was Rebecca. We don't know Rebecca as well as we knew Sarah, right? But her name was Rebecca. And then Jacob ended up with two wives at the same time, and one of his wives was named Leah, and Leah's younger sister was named, you remember her name? Rachel. And uh, Rachel, the Bible tells us, was beautiful in form and appearance. She and Jacob evidently had chemistry, and yet he ends up being tricked by his future father-in-law, a man named Laban, and he married Leah first, and then he married Rachel. And so here this fellow, now he's got two wives at the same time, and he's trying to work out all the dynamics of a very, very complicated situation. And so in Genesis chapter 29 is where we're going to be tonight. And I want us to begin by looking. I'll just show you a verse that kind of summarizes what I said. In Genesis chapter 29, look in verse number 17. Because we have a description here of both of these girls. It says, Leah's eyes were delicate or weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. So from a purely physical perspective, Rachel was slightly more attractive than Leah. And that's one of the reasons Jacob wanted to marry her. And so Jacob had worked for many years for this man named Laban, who was the father of both these girls. And he said to Laban, he said, I'll work for you if... As my payment, you will let me marry Rachel. And so he worked the years that they had agreed upon for him to work, and it was time for the two of them to marry, Jacob and Rachel. It was the wedding day, and Laban dressed his daughter up, Leah, put a veil over her face. Evidently, it was a night wedding. They didn't have all the electricity we have today. Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel. He's actually marrying Leah. And the next morning, they wake up, the sun's out, he looks across the tent, and he thinks, good night, I married the wrong girl. I married Leah when I thought I was going to marry Rachel. So he goes to Laban and said, what is this? You've tricked me. You didn't let me marry Rachel. And Laban said, in this culture, you don't understand, the younger daughter marries first, or the older daughter, the older daughter rather, marries all first, and then the younger. So you've already married Leah, even though you didn't know you were, I will give you Rachel now if you will agree to stay and work for me for several more years. And so he was married then to Rachel, so he had these two wives. And yet, because of the chemistry that Jacob and Rachel had, Leah felt a little bit like the third wheel. And she knew that she was not the girl that Jacob would really, that he had really wanted to marry. So she felt like, you know, unloved, and she just didn't feel like that she measured up. Now, in beginning in verse number 31, we read that God opened Leah's womb, and she begins having children. In fact, she had six sons and one daughter, and we're going to look tonight at the names of the first four sons that she had, and as we see this, we're going to see how Leah was trying to do anything she could to gain the love of Jacob. And here's what we read in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. So she names this boy Reuben, and that name literally means, see, a son. 
so that she could go to Jacob and say, Jacob, see, I've given you a son. Rachel hasn't given you any children, but I have. And she was hoping that that little boy would earn her the love of Jacob. And she, you, could just, you could imagine her holding that boy up to Jacob and say, see, Jacob, here is a son. Interestingly enough, Jacob's sons, he had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Reuben is the oldest of those sons. Joseph was the 11th. Benjamin was the 12th. They were both born from Rachel. But nonetheless, here we have Leah hoping to earn her husband's love through having kids. Now look in verse number 33. So she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Boy number two is named Simeon. And that name literally means heard. And so she was saying, even God knows that Jacob doesn't love me. And God has heard my cries, and God understands my predicament. And so God now has given me a second son, and maybe this will earn the love of Jacob. Verse 34, she, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And the name Levi literally means attached. And so here she is with her third boy, and she looks at him, and she's thinking, maybe now Jacob will feel an attachment to me. Maybe he will love me as much as he loves Rachel. And so she names the boy Levi because that means attached. Well, that didn't work either. Uh, and so by the time we get to verse 35, she's pregnant again, and it says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. She stopped bearing for a while. She had two more sons and a daughter later on, maybe more daughters, but she stopped bearing here. But the name Judah means praise. Now, I was reading in my own Bible reading a few weeks ago, Genesis chapter 29. Wasn't looking for a sermon. Wasn't thinking about a sermon. I've just been reading through Genesis in my own Bible reading. And I was reading through one of my study Bibles, and the footnote of the study Bible once we got to verse 35, I, sh I wish I would have brought the study Bible to read you the footnote tonight. But the footnote of the study Bible said this, and I'm paraphrasing it. It said up until this point in the story, Leah was trying to find love and acceptance and happiness and contentment through her relationship with her husband Jacob and through her kids. You know that a lot of people have the idea that if they're not happy, the way to be happy is to get married and have kids. And marriage and kids are a tremendous blessing from God. But the footnote I read said, it wasn't until she had son number four that she learned that real and lasting happiness doesn't come from being married and it doesn't come from having kids. Real and lasting happiness and contentment only comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll take your outline tonight, I have tried to say that a little bit better in the first lesson that we learned, and this is from Leah. Notice what I've written there. True happiness can only be found in a personal, intimate, growing relationship with God. And so by the time son number four was born, what does uh, Leah do? She says, I've got, to, I've got to look at this a little differently. I named my first three kids uh, names hoping that they would earn me the love of Jacob, but I'm coming to understand something in life. 
True and lasting happiness and contentment doesn't come from Jacob loving me. True and lasting contentment comes from God loving me. And so she named this boy Judah, which means praise. Now, the application of this lesson tonight is endless. But it's, it's simple, and it applies to all of us on one level or another. If you want to be happy in life, and if you want to have contentment in life, and if you want to have peace in life, the only way that you can have any of those things is through a personal, intimate, growing relationship with God. Did you know you have one person in your life who will be with you all the way to the end, and he spells his name, J-E-S-U-S. I talked to one of our widows today, one of the godliest ladies I've ever known, been a member of this church for decades. Her husband died years ago. They used to be here every Wednesday night. That's part of the reason that we're struggling to get our attendance back, and it's taking a little bit of time. A lot of the people who've been with us through the years are now having their Wednesday night service in heaven. They've moved on up. And they're there, so they're not here anymore. And this lady's husband was one of those. And they were here every Wednesday night. And as I was talking to her today, and I was just listening to her tell about how good God has been to her, and she can't live in the home that they lived in anymore. She's moved to a, to a retirement-type home. She's living in a, kind of an apartment by herself now. But as I was listening to her tell me how real God is to her and how close God is to her, and how much peace God gives to her. I thought to myself, I'm glad she didn't put all the eggs in her husband's basket because he's not here anymore. I'm glad she didn't put all the eggs in her kid's basket because they've grown and moved on. I'm glad she put all of her eggs in God's basket because God's going to be with her all the way to heaven. Now, we're thankful for our friends. We're certainly thankful for our family, and yet we have to understand if we are building our lives on anything other than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like we're standing on a piece of carpet that could be yanked out from under us at any moment. So, yes, we should be thankful for our family, and certainly we should be thankful for our friends, but we need to understand they don't have the ability, the capability, the capacity to give us happiness and peace that only comes from relationship with God. And by the time Leah had had son number four, her focus changed, and she said, you know what, whether Jacob loves me or not, <laughs> whether these kids earn my love from him or not, I'm going to just praise God for who he is and for the blessings that he has given me in my life. I think it's a tremendous, tremendous lesson. Now, let's go to chapter number 38, and let's continue thinking about Judah, the uh, fourth son of, of Jacob and of Leah. Now, Judah is, is an interesting personality in the Bible. Now, if you're a student of the book of Genesis, you know that when you come to chapter 37 and through chapter 50, the end of the book, you're reading the life story of Joseph. 37 through 50 is all about Joseph. Well, chapter 38 doesn't seem to fit in <laughs> because it has nothing to do with Joseph. It's like it's a parenthesis. It's like chapter 37 introduces us to Joseph and kind of sets the stage for his story. Chapter 39 to the end fills out the details of his story. But chapter 38 tells a very odd story having nothing to do with Joseph about Judah and Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, Tamar. 
And so I want us to just read, just follow along, the first eight verses to begin with. And I want you just to get a feel for this. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So the father of this girl was Shua. And he married her and went in to her. Now Judah's married to Shua's daughter. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. And he conceived yet again, or she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So now Tamar is married to Judah's oldest son. That's why I said that she's his daughter-in-law. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So now Tamar's wife is gone. Ur's out of the picture. So Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. And so Onan, son too, now he's marrying or married to Tamar. And in verse 9 and 10, we read that he did something that greatly displeased the Lord. So the Lord killed him. And so now Tamar has been married to Judah's uh, two oldest sons, and they've both died. Now look at verse number uh, 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So think about this. This girl's been married to two men. They both died. And now Judah, instead of just releasing her to go out there and marry somebody else, Judah says, here's what I want you to do, Tamar. I want you to go back to your father's house. And I want you to wait for my third son to get old enough to marry you. Now, that's asking a lot of a girl right there. At her age, having had two husbands, now is being sent back to her father's house to wait for son number three to grow up. That, that's asked. He never should have asked. He never should have put that burden on her. And yet, Tamar did that. She went back to her father's house, and she was waiting on son number three to grow up so they could, be, they could get married. Now, look at verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So now Judah has lost his wife. Do you remember at the beginning of the message, I said, tonight we're going to learn some lessons from an unloved woman, that was Leah, a grieving man. This is Judah. We've just come to, to him. His wife died. And so Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And so Judah's wife died, and obviously, at this time, he's grieving. Naturally, normally, he would be. And yet the Scripture says that in his grief, he was comforted. Now, how was he comforted? Well, we see two things in verse 12 that he did. It says, he went up to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira. We could say it this way. After his wife died, what did he do? Judah turned to his work, and he turned to his friend. Now, if you've ever been to it through a time of grief in your life, you've lost a spouse, uh, you've lost somebody else in your family, you've, you've had a loss in your life, and so now there's an emptiness, there's a void, there's a pain 
Something is missing. Well, when you go through an experience like that, you're going to turn somewhere. And Judah turned to two very normal places. He turned to his work. He went to the sheep shearers. They were up there shearing those sheep and, and selling that. And people were making coats and jackets and keeping themselves warm. So he, he threw himself into his work. And he hooked up with his buddy Hira. This is normal. When you've had a loss, you're going to call your friends more than normal because you've lost your spouse. You're going to work longer than normal. Why not? You're not hurrying home to see your spouse. And so you're throwing yourself into your work. You're throwing yourself into your friends. You might be throwing yourself into a hobby. You could throw yourself into a lot of things. Here we read that Judah threw himself. He turned to his work and he turned to his friend. But nowhere do we read that he turned to the Lord. So his comfort was temporary because friends can help, but they can only help so much. Work can help, but it can only help so much. A hobby, that's a great thing to turn to, to work out, play golf, travel, to help you with your grief. That's a great thing, but that can only help so much. We don't read anything here that says during his time of grief that Judah turned to the Lord. And as a result of that, he ended up getting himself in trouble. Now, let me give you the second lesson we learned tonight from these three characters. We're thinking about Judah tonight. Write this down in your outline. When we, when we have experienced a loss of some kind, and when we are grieving, it is imperative that we turn first and often to the Lord. First to the Lord. What Judah should, he should have kept his job and he should have kept his friend. But before he called his friend and did his job, he should have said, God, it's just me and you now. And I'm turning to you because my heart is broken because I've lost my wife and I feel alone in this world. But God, I am turning to you because I believe that you are the healer and the mender of broken hearts and that you will comfort me and you will help me through this. And then he could have worked hard, and then he could have been with his friends. No, he bypassed God. Now look at this lesson again. When we've experienced a loss of some kind and are grieving, it is imperative that we turn first to the Lord, first and often to the Lord. Now, in verse number 13, we begin to read, the consequences of Judah not turning to the Lord. And I, would just, I normally wouldn't read this much Scripture. I would just tell it. But I, the Bible says it better than I can. So look in verse 13. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila, that is this third son, was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. So now she's been done wrong. Tamar has been not done right by her father-in-law. She waited for this third son to grow up. He grew up, but she never had the opportunity to marry him. And let me just, before I read the rest of this, give you lesson number three. Because what we see in the rest of this story, not only Judah trying to deal with his grief without God, we also see Tamar battling bitterness. Now she's upset with what Judah has done. Look at number th lesson number three. Bitterness is a sin that can lead to other sins. It negatively affects us and others. Anytime you're offended or done wrong or something unfair happens in your life, if you don't deal with that properly, you're going to probably become bitter. 
And bitterness is when you begin to hold a grudge and you get mad. Sometimes we're mad at God. Sometimes we're mad at people. Bitterness is a killer. It is a poison that eats away from the inside out. It is a cancer that spreads. And we read in the book of Hebrews that if we are bitter, we're going to stain other people. So not only are we going to be unhappy, we're going to cause a lot of other people some problems. So that's what you're dealing with here. Judah's grieving, and Tamar is bitter. And look in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, a prostitute, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that I may come into you? Now here is Judah. This man's name means praise. His whole life is supposed to be devoted to God. And yet he's gone through a time of grief. He's not turned to God. He turned to his work. He turned to his friend. He may have turned to some hobby, but he didn't turn to God. And so now Judah is doing what? He is propositioning what who he believes to be a prostitute. It is almost unthinkable. And that's why I said, I said earlier, when you're going through a time of grief, if you don't turn first and often to the Lord, the odds are you're going you're to fall into sin out there. And let me say this, not to excuse what Judah did. It's wrong. There's no excuse for any sin. But put yourself in his shoes. He's lonely. He's sad. He misses his wife. He has a void in his life. Work couldn't fill it. His friend couldn't fill it. Hobbies couldn't fill it. He's got this emptiness. He sees this attractive young lady, and so he propositions her. There's no excuse for it. It is sin. I'm just saying I actually understand uh, why he did it. It was terribly wrong, but I, I can follow, his, I can follow his, his logic there, and so can you if you think about it, but it's still wrong. So in verse 17, he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet, that is your ring and your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. How dare my daughter-in-law act like a harlot, killer. Have you ever noticed that sometimes in life, the people who are most critical of others are guilty of the same sin? In fact, there's a verse in Romans, I'm paraphrasing it, that says we criticize most in others that which exists in us. The reason we can see it so clearly in them is because it's in our own life. And so now Judah and Tamar have had this incredibly immoral relationship. And Judah finds out that Tamar has become pregnant through harlotry. And he says, take her life. 
I mean, you talk about hypocrisy, total hypocrisy. He said, bring her out, let her be burned. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, now, now Judah's, he's coming to repentance, right? He's seeing the light. She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. When I was doing this sermon today, at the end of verse 26 where it says he never knew her again, I never had paid any attention to that sentence. He never knew her again. I underlined it, and here's what I thought. And I, I went back in my mind to when I was a student minister of the church, and sometime we would be having a special weekend for the kids, a, a breaking free disciple now, and true love waits, encouraging everybody to stay pure till you get married. And it seemed like every time we did one of those, somebody would come up to me, and it was usually a girl, and they would say, John, it's too late for me. I've already lost my purity. And you're ha we're having this special weekend, true love waits, but it's too late for me. I've already blown it. And sometimes it would be a young man who would say that. It seemed like it was normally a girl. But sometimes it would be a young man. Who say, and I would always say to them, listen, you may have messed up before this weekend. But let this weekend be the time that you draw a line in the sand. That you make a fresh commitment. And from this night forward, practice true love waits. Practice purity. And live a holy, honorable life before God. You can always start over. And today, when I read this sentence, my mind went back to that. Notice again at the end of verse 26. And he never knew her again. You see, the devil will convince you that if you've done something wrong in this area, certainly if it's in the area of morality and you've, you've if you were before you got married, you committed fornication. After you got married, you committed adultery, and you say, it's too late for me. I've already messed up. Well, let me tell you something. If you'll ask God's forgiveness and receive it and be cleansed, it, it, it's, it's meaningful and, to me, appropriate for Judah that God looked down from that, and God said, he never knew her again. You see, just like God noticed Judah's sin with Tamar, he also noticed Judah's purity from that moment on. And I just feel like tonight, and maybe it's not even in the area of morality. Maybe it's in some other totally different related area. Maybe it's with drugs or alcohol, or maybe it's with honesty or cheating, or maybe it's with losing your temper. Or may, You say, man, I've blown it. I, it's too late for me. It's never too late. Listen, can you find, take, take your left thumb and put it on your right wrist. Can you find a heartbeat there tonight? I can't find mine. Is there a nurse around here tonight? Is there a doctor? Now, I found it. Right there it is. As long as that pulse is beating, it's not too late for you. And so, ask God to forgive you for what you've done. Be cleansed. And don't commit the same sin twice. And I, that's such a, to me, I just never had noticed that. He never knew her again. Verse 27. Now, it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth, and then the rest of this story just tells about the two twins, and we won't read all of that. The point is, Judah was grieving. Instead of turning to the Lord, he turned to his work. He turned to his friend. He may have turned to his hobby. He didn't turn to the Lord, and because of that, he sinned. If he would have turned to God, he wouldn't have gotten in this mess. Tamar was understandably bitter. What had happened to her was unfair. And yet, instead of turning to God, taking that to God, and saying, God, 
what happened to me is not fair. I should have been given the third son so that I could be his wife and so that we could have kids. And it, it hasn't happened. My father-in-law didn't keep his word. God, it's unfair. But she didn't turn to God. So she went into trickery. He went into immorality. They both went into immorality, and it was a horrible thing. And those are the lessons we learned from Judah and from Tamar. But there's another lesson that I want us to end with tonight that kind of brightens up the whole Bible study, and I wish you'd write this down. Lesson number four, no matter where we've been or what we've done, God's grace always gets the last word. Now, notice these three words. These are your blanks. If we repent. If we repent, if we repent, then God's grace will always get the last word. Now, we read here about the repentance of Judah. Judah said, she's been more righteous than I. We didn't read here about the repentance of Tamar, but we know that she did repent of what she did wrong, and I'll show you how we know that. Go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter number 1. In Matthew chapter 1, I want you to find this. I want you to see one of the most amazing things in all the Bible tonight. Matthew chapter number 1, the first 17 verses give us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The genealogy of Jesus. It tells us about his, uh, about his ancestors. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now watch verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot, now you would expect it to say Reuben, right? Why didn't Reuben, wasn't Reuben the firstborn son? We saw that earlier, but notice what it says. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah was the fourth son, and yet we're reading Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're not even reading about Joseph. I mean, he's the, he's the charmed one in the story when it's all, but no, Judah. Judah now has taken the role of prominence, and the other brothers are not even named. Judah and his brothers. Look at verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah. If we would have continued reading in chapter 38 of Genesis, we would see those are the names of those twin boys that they had. So Judah begot Perez and Zerah by, watch this, by Tamar. In verse 2, we see that Judah, who had committed this horrible act of immorality, ends up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we see that Tamar, who seduced him and tricked him into this, she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Just to make it more interesting, look in verse number 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. You remember Rahab from the book of Joshua? She was a prostitute. Now we have another prostitute uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a foreigner, and yet she turned to God. Now this Moabite is ending up in the genealogy of Jesus. And look at verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Bathsheba. Now you've got Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Two prostitutes and an adulteress. And a Moabite who grew up pagan. And they're in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that's why I said, wherever you've been and whatever you've done, the grace of God will always get the last word if you will repent of that sin. And just so we wouldn't be confused about it, God said, I'm going to drop Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus. 
I'm going to put Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus, and if that's not enough, I'm going to put Judah and Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Somebody should have said amen about three or four times, and you're just not doing it, and this is good preaching that I'm giving out of here tonight. Now, go to chapter number five. Go to chapter number five. One last verse, and then we'll stop. I mean, Judah, back in Genesis 38, that man's at a low, low. He's having an affair with his daughter-in-law. I don't know if we understand how horrible that whole thing was. Matthew 1, he is in the genealogy of Jesus with Tamar, with Bathsheba, with Rahab. Unbelievable. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. You remember when we began our study of Revelation and we came to this passage of the scene that is taking place in heaven? And here were these scroll, here was a scroll, and they're trying to figure out who is worthy to open the scroll. Let's refresh our memory. Look in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is in God the Father's right hand, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John is writing, he said, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John is having this vision. He's transported to heaven. He sees God on the throne, and out of his right hand, in his hand, is a scroll. And John is wondering, who can open that scroll and tell us what the message is? Not an angel in heaven was worthy to open that scroll. And John's weeping and crying, but he's wanting to know, what is the message from God in that scroll? Look in verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion, watch this, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll to loose its seven seals. In Genesis chapter 38, Judah's at, a, at the low water mark of his life, and he commits an unthinkable sin. But he repented of it, and he received God's grace. And hundreds of years later, he'd been in heaven a long time by now, but his name ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. And in the very last book of the Bible, Jesus Christ himself, one of his most endearing names, is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And it says to me, wherever you've been, and whatever you've done, if you will repent, God's grace will cover that sin and get the last word on your situation. Amen.